podcast one production. It's the middle of July, and I'm sitting on a park bench on the waterfront in Yokohama, Japan. I've been in Japan for two weeks. I'm here writing my next book. I write in the mornings, in the afternoons, I get to run around and have fun. And on this particular afternoon, I'm visiting my friend Dave, who's lived in Japan on and off for about a decade. Now, when we're not face-to-face in Japan, we send messages using his favorite app, Line. You might not have heard of Line, but it's big in Japan. Huge. So I've been using Line for a few weeks, and when I catch up with Dave, I see that he's using it to pay for, well, just about everything. Line has another app, Line Pay. It's connected to his bank account. So when Dave gets to the checkout counter, he shows them the screen of his smartphone. It's showing a barcode. They scan that at the counter, and that's it. That's all it takes to make a payment. It's quick, it's efficient, it's cashless. And that's a big deal in Japan because, you see, the Japanese, they don't particularly like credit cards. It wasn't very long ago that no Japanese had credit cards. They were considered, well, almost disgraceful. That's changed a bit, but Japan is still very much a cash culture. In the two weeks I traveled across Japan, I only used my credit card twice. For everything else, I paid cash, and that meant constant visits to ATMs to get more cash. It would have been great to have something like line pay when I was visiting, and so Dave said to me, why don't you see if you can sign up for line pay? So I looked through the line app, and sure enough, there's line pay, and I signed up for it. It wanted a bank card, so I used my Australian credit card, and that all went fine, and I had line pay. Great. Dave says, okay, let me use line pay to send you 100 yen. That's, that's about $1.50. And he punched in the amount, and he scanned the barcode that line pay had given me for my account, and the app said, no, nope, nope, nope. And I pretty much knew why, but I didn't say anything, not yet. I wanted to run another test. So we went to a local store, and I tried to use Line Pay at the checkout. And I couldn't, because, the app said, my credit card wasn't Japanese. And that's when I knew why. Even though I'd gotten all of it set up just fine, I knew why Line Pay wouldn't work for me in Japan. It fit in perfectly with the reason that I'd come to Japan in the first place. Now, when I was in Japan this year, Series 2 of Cryptonomics, it sort of wrote itself. And that moment on the waterfront in Yokohama was when this whole series came together because a new story is unfolding. It's a different story from last year. The technology remains mostly the same, but the world, the world's moved along. I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to episode two of series two of Cryptonomics, a show dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, are transforming our entire world. Along the way, we've learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We've spoken to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We've learned how things work, why they work, and when they don't. 
In Series 1, we covered enough of the basics to help you make your own investment decisions. You have all the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? You learned the questions you'd need to ask and the sorts of answers you'd want to receive. The cryptocurrencies, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain is just over a decade old. And it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including banking. It's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. And over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, all of it's going to be changed by this new technology. And that's why we called this series Cryptonomics. So when you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall and the rise again in the price of Bitcoin, you can see that there's another wave, a tsunami of change rolling over banks, retailers, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrency. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business. It's already forcing governments and regulators to make way for it. In a moment, we'll take a look at one of those regulators, one that touches every government on Earth, and yet you've probably never heard of them. That day in Yokohama, as my friend Dave tried to send me 100 Japanese yen via line pay, we hit a wall, and it wasn't a technology wall. I mean, the app, the app could have sent the money easily from his account to my account. But his account and his bank, they live in Japan, and my account and my bank, they live in Australia. So that means, even though we were sitting about 20 centimeters apart at the time, it means that the funds would have to move across a national border. And that's something that we're very careful about these days. These days, well... That's the 18 years since that horrible September morning when those two jets crashed into the twin towers of the World Trade Center, 9-11. Out of that tragedy came a lot of forensic analysis about how the terrorists got into the United States and how they got the funding they needed to carry out their attacks. And when all of that was well understood, the nations of the world came to a consensus that it should not be allowed to happen again, that the international monetary system must not be abused to fund terrorism. Now, the responsibility for ensuring that it never happened again devolved onto a little-known organization, the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF. Okay, the FATF's been around for about 25, 30 years. It's called the Financial Action Task Force. It's not actually a task force, it's now a standing body. But what it does is it sets standards for uh, combating money laundering and terrorism financing internationally. That's Roger Wilkins Ao, a venerable Australian public servant and, in 2015, the president of the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF. Sitting around the table are the G20 countries. They agree on a set of rec what are called recommendations and then all the countries in the world are meant to actually implement those recommendations by passing legislation, setting up institutions, setting up law enforcement bodies, etc. Um, so that's what it does. It sets the standards which then the rest of the world is meant to follow to combat money laundering and terrorism financing. And it has some subsidiary bodies, some that deal with the Asia-Pacific, some that deal with Africa, some that deal with Europe, some that deal with... Uh, Eastern Europe and, uh, and, and Asia. 
So that's what the FATF does in broad strokes. And you might never hear about that, but the specifics, that's where it matters to all of us. Because the reason that Dave couldn't send money to me in line pay, that's because of the FATF. FATF have to make sure that all of these new payment systems, and there's a lot of them these days, that they can't be used to fund terrorism. That's a priority at the FATF, according to Roger. Yeah, basically, they have had to think about that. And and, and recommendation 15, the one that's actually been causing all the interest and furore about in terms of cryptocurrencies, deals with emerging uh, emerging technologies and and governments around the world are meant to appraise themselves of new technologies and figure out what the implications are for money laundering and then take action about that a lot of the payment methods though uh, piggyback on on banks and a lot of people rely on the banking system still as the backbone of customer due diligence and and KYC uh, but there are some exceptions to that. PayPal, for example, if you've done some PayPal, you'll know that they go through a sort of fairly um, elementary form of customer due diligence. They want to know who you are. They want some documentation and stuff like that. Um, so the, the answer is, yeah, they are meant to, uh, to keep up to date with technology. That's um, less than perfect because, you know, the, the capability around the world, the difference between what the United States is capable of doing or the United Kingdom or Germany is completely different from what Samoa or Fiji or some little country in South America can do. And of course, the FATF would be pointless if it didn't have teeth and a capacity to review whether countries were complying with their recommendations. It's one of the few international bodies that actually tries to figure out whether people have actually done what they're supposed to do. So it does periodic reviews of countries to see if they're complying with the recommendations. And then it has a type of, like an inquisition. So if you're really bad and you get on the blacklist, then you're called in and you have to explain. And you can become a pariah in the, in the world financial markets. You know, you can be such that, you know, you can't trade US dollars in New York and the ratings agencies give you a sort of zero rating um, if you don't comply. So there is some sanctions attached. Uh, there are some ways in which uh, countries feel compelled or are compelled to comply at least with the, the minimal requirements of the recommendations. And in fact, I mean, one of the part of the recommendations say that countries should actually blackball you under certain circumstances. This happens fairly rarely. And the FATF tries, rather than to simply um, exclude people from the financial system, to, uh, to use it as a, um, as a reason to bring it into what's called the, what was it, the International Cooperation Review Group, which is a euphemism for a bunch of people who sit around and give advice or require you to do certain things in the next three months and you've got to come back and explain what you've done. And then in the next three months, you've got to do some more stuff and come back and explain what you've done. So the, the idea is to get people to improve, not to sort of throw them out of the system. Um, so that's used, that, but there's a carrot and a stick. Yeah, so the, the carrot is that you can stay in the markets and people will slap you on the back and applaud loudly. And that's happened with, say, Indonesia, for as an example of that. Uh, Australia worked closely with Indonesia, so we know their system. But they were really down in the grey, black area 
now, because they're a G20 country, they'll probably end up sitting at the main table, mm. which is an important well, promotion. Well, people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And let's be clear. For countries that don't improve, well, they eventually get kicked out of the global financial system. That's where North Korea and Iran and Syria all find themselves right now. They can't trade internationally with anyone because they can't access the financial system. It's pretty much the ultimate financial weapon, the last one they roll out, because the consequences are so dire. Cutting off an economy from global networks of trade and finance effectively sentences an entire population to poverty. So the FATF even though you've probably never heard of them before this episode, the FATF has enormous power. They can make or break whole economies. So to bring this back to that park bench in Yokohama, the reason Dave couldn't send me money is because the Japanese regulations, in compliance with the FATF recommendations, they make it effectively impossible to move money out of Japan without quite a bit of paperwork. Dave could have handed me cash, but he can't make an electronic transfer of funds to Australia because that would be a loophole for the financing of international terrorism. And I can't use LinePay connected to my Australian credit card to buy something in a Japanese shop because that too could be a way to fund and finance terrorism using the international banking system. Those holes, they get closed by the regulators on recommendation of the FATF. And this is a big part of how SWIFT works. Now, you've used SWIFT if you've ever sent funds internationally between bank accounts. This is a big part of how PayPal works. PayPal, designed to facilitate payments online, became a way to facilitate international payments online because eBay sellers and eBay buyers are often in different countries using different currencies. PayPal had to bridge that gap in a way that protects against terrorist financing. So PayPal has to do work to ensure that the sender and the recipients of payments are who they say they are. That's KYC or know your customer. And they do that in order to prevent money laundering. And that's one reason why you can't buy a gift card on eBay or really anywhere online if you're not in the same country as the vendor selling the gift card because gift cards are money. There's a lot of nuance here. There are a lot of rules to observe, and this is a big part of what banking is in the 21st century, making sure these rules are enforced to prevent bad actors from using international finance in a way that makes us all less safe. Okay, so what does this have to do with cryptocurrencies? Well, therein lies a tale. We haven't talked about the dark web on this series, and that's because, well, it's really just a little over the top. Yet there are places on the internet where you can buy all sorts of illegal things. Drugs, sex, weapons, you name it. Even contract killers. And there was a notorious case a few years back of a fellow who went by the pseudonym Dread Pirate Roberts. That's straight out of The Princess Bride. He ran a website known as Silk Road where you could buy, well, practically anything. And the way you paid for those illegal purchases? Well, with Bitcoin, of course. Now, 
It's never really been a good look for Bitcoin that it's being used to pay for sex, drugs, and murder. Currencies aren't supposed to have a bad boy image. But that in itself wasn't enough to bring the FATF to focus on cryptocurrencies. However, it's tremendously easy to move large amounts of cryptocurrency quickly and invisibly across international borders. And Jerome Powell, chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, made quite a point of this when he expressed his own concerns about Facebook's new Libra cryptocurrency. Libra raises many serious concerns uh, regarding privacy, money laundering, consumer protection, and financial stability. Uh, these are concerns that should be thoroughly and publicly addressed before proceeding. And that's why at the Fed we've set up a working group uh, to focus on, on this set of issues. We are coordinating with our, our colleagues in the government, in the United States, the, the regulatory agencies and Treasury. We're coordinating with central banks and governments around the world to, to look into this. Um, and I'll just add that the process of addressing these concerns, we think, should be a patient and careful one and not a sprint to implementation. Those concerns, they're why the FATF exists. So the FATF decided it was long past time to make some recommendations on how to safely move cryptocurrencies, or virtual assets as they like to call them, across international borders. We've just last week in Orlando, uh, we had our 30th anniversary plenary meeting, um, and we adopted a new interpretive note to the FATF Recommendation 15, and that sets out in some detail how the virtual assets sector needs to apply anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing rules. Tom Nealon is the senior policy analyst at the FATF. It was on him and his team to figure out how to close the enormous loophole created by cryptocurrencies. This has been an unregulated sector up until now, except in one or two countries that have got a very ahead of the curve. Um, and there's a real determination up to the highest political levels, the G20, the UN Security Council, that that can't continue. The vulnerabilities to money laundering and terrorist financing are too great and it's time to implement global, consistent regulation across the whole sector. And there's, I mean, there's also that uh, a persistent sense that cryptocurrencies are being used, for instance, when there's a cyber attack and people's computers get locked up and all of that. So there's mm. actually been, and the dark web, right? There's also been a lot of just illegal activity that's been associated with cryptocurrency. Did that factor in at all to what the FATF was thinking when it was doing this? I think all of these are factors, um, but it's particularly the cases where cryptocurrencies have been used for financing terrorism and financing WMD proliferation that are of the most urgent concern. The FATF's recommendations for cryptocurrencies, and it's, it's quite a big booklet. We'll post a link to the Cryptonomics website so you can read the booklet for yourself. Well, those recommendations can be distilled into something known as the travel rule. Okay. Um, it's a little bit like the rule for the financial services sector. So for wire transfers, when you send money from bank to bank across a border, uh, the sending bank has got to know who you are, its customer, the originator, and it's got to provide that information to the beneficiary bank that's receiving your funds on behalf of its customer who you're sending the money to. Um, so it's just payment transparency. The reason this exists is partly to provide an audit trail to investigators when they're investigating a crime so they can see where the money went, but primarily it's to enable screening for targeted financial sanctions. The bank needs to know that they're not sending money to a designated terrorist. 
Um, and unless they know the name of the person who's receiving it, they can't do that. The travel rule is putting the same function in place for the virtual assets sector. The difference is we've got to respect the way virtual assets work. Um, and that's not the same as the traditional financial sector and we need to work with the industry to find a way of implementing the same function uh, but in this very different context. That's something where we're looking to industry experts to take the lead. Those industry experts got together in Japan. That's the reason I was in Japan. And in our next episode, we'll learn what happened when all of these folks who have made a matzo dealing in cryptocurrencies learned that the party's over. If you want to learn more about the FATF or Roger Wilkins or Tom Nealon or LinePay, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Big thanks to Roger Wilkins and Tom Nealon for coming on our show. Big thanks to Dave Ludwig for showing me how to use LinePay. The next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, search The Next Billion Seconds, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.